My name is Matt Stefan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church, and I'm so glad that you're here today. But before we begin, I want to let you in on a little secret. Sometimes a preacher's best friend is a simple thesaurus. So for example, for this talk, we're dealing with a pretty complex passage, and I wanted to refer to it as a doozy of a passage, but I ended up saying doozy like a hundred times in this talk. So I looked it up, and it turns out there's a ton of good synonyms for doozy. Here they are. Now I want you to read through them, and if you're watching with somebody, maybe you're watching alone, just say out loud. I'm going to count to three, and on the count of three, say out loud, this passage is, and then insert your favorite synonym for doozy. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. This passage is a sock dollager. Can you, can you believe that's a real word? What does that even mean? I guess it's a, a synonym for doozy. Anyways, great job. Now, we've been in a series of the past few Sundays uh, where we've been asking this really big question. What does it mean to be a human being? And in this series, Being Human, we've been studying the life of David. And this absolute ripper of a passage comes from the life uh, of this character, David. And what we're going to see today is this pretty incredible truth that we embrace our humanness when we live in the presence of God. Or maybe put a different, different way, when we worship, we come alive. That's what we're going to think about today. Now, before we get to this doozy of a passage, two bits of background about the life of David. First of all, a big part of First and Second Samuel is the rivalry between Saul and David. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel, and as we saw last week, uh, the favor of God has moved from Saul and on to David, and Saul has become a bitter and toxic character. Now, since then, Saul has died in battle and all of his sons along with him, and David has been crowned and anointed king of Israel. Now, backstory bit number two, we're tracking something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we'll learn all about what the Ark of the Covenant is here in a moment. But for now, let's say the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of the very real presence of Israel's God, Yahweh, with them. And about 30 chapters before our doozy of a passage today, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the enemy nation, the Philistines. And because it is Israel's God in a foreign nation, it is for the Philistines a pox. It is a curse. It is a plague. So quickly, they build a cart and get some oxen and return the Ark of the Covenant uh, to the Israelites. And they stash it at the first place across the border, the house of a man named Abinadab. And there it rests for 30 chapters, almost 20 years, until our passage today, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, right before this passage, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David has been crowned king of Israel. And one of his very first acts as king is what we're going to read about today, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of the God, which is called by the name, this poetic phrase, the ark of God called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, as I said, we'll go through the details of the ark here in a moment, but here, the mention of God being enthroned between the cherubim on the ark demands some explanation. The lid of the ark, the top of the ark, was a statue of two angels 
called Cherubim, this golden statue, and it formed a throne where Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, was said to sit. So this is about the presence of God resting upon the ark. The name of the Lord God Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, and they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. Now I've asked our worship leader at San Mateo Jr. to increase our budget this year for castanets. It's going to be a crazy year. The passage goes on. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. A doozy of a passage indeed. Now this phrase, God struck him down in the old King James Bible is smote. You might've heard of God uh, in the Old Testament, smiting people. This is the passage where God smites someone. And I just want to give you an overview of this passage, and then we'll get into the details of why God smited this guy, Uzzah. This passage has four parts. This first part, strangely enough, is about worship. And I think it has for us a very relevant and challenging message about what it truly means to worship. So worship is the first part, and then there'll be a brief passage about engagement, and then one about blessing, and then finally in this passage, one about joy. Worship, engagement, blessing, and joy. That's what this is about. And so if this first section is a passage about worship, it really begs the question, why did God strike this guy Uzzah down? There's two predominant theories about why God struck Uzzah down. The first has to do with what the ark is. Now the ark is a four foot by three foot wooden box plated with gold with this statue of the angels on the top. Inside of the ark were three very important relics. And it helps to understand that the Hebrews were a very concrete people. And these were concrete reminders of God's intervention on behalf of Israel. And so what was inside the ark was uh, the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, manna that God provided for the Israelites when they were hungry in the desert, and the wooden rod of Moses' brother Aaron, this dead wooden rod, in the presence of Pharaoh, became alive and sprouted leaves. And this was seen as a warning shot to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go from Egypt, that Israel's God could fulfill the threats that he was promising to unleash upon Egypt because he could make this dead piece of wood sprout leaves. And these three things for Israel remind them in a very concrete way that God instructs them through the tablets, provides for them in the manna, and protects them through the rod of Aaron guides, provides, and protects. This is what was in the Ark of the Covenant. And then uh, a very important part of the design of the Ark of the Covenant was how it was to be carried. Along the bottom of this wooden gold embossed box were a series of rings, and there were to be ceremonial poles put into the rings so that it could be carried on the shoulders of four men right here on your shoulder. It was to be personally interacted with. This was kind of a slow and clumsy way to move something as important as the ark. But that's what they did because God designed it to be personally interacted with. And if we were going to summarize exactly what the ark was, we might say this. It's a concrete reminder 
of God's presence to be personally interacted with. And here is Uzzah, whose family has been in possession of it for 20 years, maybe forgetting, maybe being inattentive to the power and the presence next to him. God is angry with him because he is inattentive to the presence and power of God right here next to him. And here, guys like me have to issue an apology. You see, I've spent uh, my entire pastoral career trying to convince people that the God of the Bible loves them, is filled with grace for them, is always pursuing them in love and compassion. And all those things are true. But I might have emphasized those to the point of excluding this other very important reality about God. I might have depicted God as so loving that he might not have been demanding to be taken seriously. I might have depicted God as so loving that I might have inadvertently conveyed to you that it was somehow optional to attend to the presence of this God. And so Uzzah is this warning. When we are inattentive to the presence of God around us, we are in danger. And it can be hard to hold together the characteristics of this really amazing character of God in the Bible. How can he smite at one moment and be gracious the next? And I remember an Old Testament professor telling me once, well, it's very easy. And any teenager has had this experience of coming home late after curfew and having their mom or dad say, I love you. I'm so glad you're home. Where have you been? There's this tension in God between demanding to be taken seriously and very serious and even dangerous and also loving us in this deep and incredible way. And so suffice it to say right here, when we are inattentive to the presence of God, we're in danger. That's predominant theory number one about why Uzzah was struck down by God. Predominant theory number two has to do with who Uzzah is. Uzzah is the son of Abinadab, and Abinadab is the son of Saul, King Saul, that we were tracking all this time in the story. And across the generations, Saul's household has cultivated a certain kind of relationship with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. Now, as I said earlier, part of the plot in, with Saul is that God's favor has moved from Saul and on to David. And really the moment where this happens, Saul's big mistake comes in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And there Saul is on the eve of this big battle. He is gonna lead the Israelite army into battle with the Philistines. And they had a ritual that they would do at the beginning of a battle. God ordained for the prophet Samuel to provide a sacrifice to God and then pray over the army. That's what they did before every army. And it was a way of asking God to bless and protect the army of Israel. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Samuel is late to the party. In fact, he's not just a few hours late, he's three days late. And Saul, in a moment of anxious leadership, seizes control of the situation and offers the sacrifice himself. And scholars tell us that this was a moment where Saul was anxiously attempting to control Yahweh. I'm going to do what you ask and force your hand to protect us instead of being attentive to the way that you asked me to do it. And our passage is showing how in a household, this can be a generation-long pattern. So Uzzah is in some way attempting to control God. And you might be asking yourself, who would try to control God? Why would someone try to do that? And it's real simple. Humans have a tendency to try to control anything around them. And sometimes we do it uh, by manipulating or intimidating or leveraging something. 
But sometimes we try to control things uh, in a subtler and maybe more insidious way. Sometimes we try to control our circumstance or try to control each other by doing good and generous things. And this happens a lot in family systems. Sometimes in a family, there'll be somebody who does something really sacrificial and really generous and it looks really nice on one level and they could say, look how great of a person I am. But on a different level, they're saying, I did something nice for you, so you better do exactly what I have asked you to do. You are now obligated to do what I want from you. And when this happens in the family system, it's called codependency, and my family's been doing it for generations. But Saul offers for us this really important example of a danger that we can be in in our life with God. Saul and his grandson Uzzah have fallen into this pattern of worshiping God so that they can get what they want from him. And we are in real danger when we worship God in order to get what we want from him. And taken in the grand scope of the narrative of the Bible, this little moment where Uzzah stops the ark from falling off the oxen cart is actually pretty offensive. The God who created the cosmos and delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians through mighty acts of power and provided for them in the desert and brought them into the promised land, his little box is gonna fall off the cart, so I better help him, is a little bit offensive. But what emerges from all of this is this portrait of faithful worship. It's being attentive to God's presence, deliberate attentiveness to God's presence, and it's cultivating a posture of surrender to what God wants above and beyond what I want. And for the rest of this talk, when we talk about worship, that's what I'm going to mean. Deliberate attentiveness to God's presence and cultivating a posture of surrender to what God wants above what I want. And I'm gonna suggest in this talk that you can worship God in that way, attention to his presence and surrender to his will. You can worship God in that way in any circumstance in your life. Now let's see how David responds to the smiting of Uzzah. Then David was angry with God because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means it broke out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the God ever come to me? And he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. So David is uh, described elsewhere as a man after God's own heart. And we've described worship as surrendering to God's will over mine. And so you might be thinking, then why is David angry at God and arguing with him? And the truth is that God wants us to be engaged from our truest selves. God wants to know how you really feel. And David is showing us that it is not incompatible to be very honest with God and still surrendering to his will. In fact, there is a kind of surrender, like a white flag, I give up and disengage, that God does not want from us. God does not want rote, mindless obedience. He wants you to participate. And it takes a lot of engagement to arrive at the kind of surrender to God's will that amounts to true worship. So we talked about worship. We talked about how that requires from David here to be engaged. Now let's talk about blessing. So instead of taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, it says this, Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Two really important things of note here. First of all, 
get, uh, Obed-Edom the Gittite is from a place called Gish, which is in Philistine. He is a Philistine. He is not a Hebrew. And here in this story about uh, tribal ethnic conflict, where God has clearly chosen one side over against the other, is this incredibly important detail that even someone who in the text is described as a bad guy, that person too can worship God in the way we've been describing. We can assume from the blessing that fell upon Obed-Edom's household that he was somehow attentive to God and surrendering to his will, even though he's not even an Israelite. And this foreshadows the great invitation of Jesus to all of us that all are welcome to share in the blessing that God has for us. And here in this tribal warfare, ethnic conflict is this really subtle reminder that God really does not pick sides in the end, that he is inviting everyone, whatever we have done, whatever we have been through, whoever we are, to come alive in his presence, to share in the blessing. And that asks us, uh, that invites us to ask this really big question, what does it mean for God to bless us? Now, sometimes we wrongly think of blessing as God giving us what we want. And sometimes when I pray, God, will you bless my kids or will you bless my family? I'm really thinking, God, will you deliver my list of desirable items? Will you do what I want to do? But blessing in the Bible really means not God, will you give me what I want? But blessing means God, will you give me what you want? And here there is some real vulnerability as we pray, as we relate to this God, that we have to give up what we want so that we can open our hands and open ourselves to what God wants. And this is a real vulnerable posture. It depends greatly on who you believe God to be. And I once heard a great summary of who God is in the Bible. He knows specifically you, he loves specifically you, and he wants good things for you. And I really like this, but the Bible is actually insistent that it is even deeper than that. God knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you could imagine. And he wants something better for you than you could even want for yourself. And it is this God that has come to bless us, to give us what he wants instead of what we want. And this corresponds pretty closely to the God who is reminding us in concrete ways through the contents of the ark that he guides us, he provides for us, and he protects us. And Obed-Edom is sharing in the blessing that God is giving to Obed-Edom what God wants for him far beyond whatever Obed-Edom wants for himself or for his household. And when we cultivate that worshipful posture of surrendering my will and preferring instead God's will for my life, that's what it means to be blessed, that we are embracing what God has for us far beyond what we would want for ourselves. Worship, engagement, and blessing. And here, Joy. So after all of this, what does David do? Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing. There was joy here. When those who were carrying the ark, now here, important detail, that instead of putting it on the oxen cart, they're interacting with it personally, the way it was designed to, they're carrying it on their shoulders. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, it's a long way, but every six steps, 
They sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in Israel, the entire crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. It's amazing that when we enter this joyful moment of worship, we're overcome with generosity. But in the context of this absolute ripper of the passage, where David has witnessed someone be struck down by God and then has abandoned the ark, what is it that David knows about worship? We have to ask ourselves. It's hard to track what is going on with David. He must know something about what it means to worship God. Now there's this amazing story about David that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 30. This is before David has become king, but a group of men, a small army, have chosen not to be loyal to Saul any longer, but instead to fight with David. They are loyal only to David. And David, because he is an Israelite, is still fighting the battle against their neighbors, the Philistines. And this small group of men and David cross the border to attack a Philistine town that has been raiding their home village. And while they are there across the border attacking this Philistine town, the Philistine army crosses the border far away from them where they can't see and attacks their own undefended undefended home village. And the text tells us that David and all his men return home and they cry until they had no more tears left when they discovered that their village has been destroyed and that their wives and families have been taken captive uh, in Philistine. Now this for David is the darkest moment of the story so far. It is a moment of personal crisis and professional failure. In fact, chapter 30 of 1 Samuel tells us that even his own men who were so loyal to him have decided that they're going to kill King David. They are so distraught, they're going to stone the person that they have been following. And David is forced to hide out, not just from Saul and not just from the Philistines, but from his own men and he's hiding in a cave. And verse six of chapter 30 in 1 Samuel says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Right there in the worst circumstances of his life, David is attentive in a very deliberate way to the presence of God with him in the worst circumstances imaginable. What does David know about worship? He knows that in battle or in personal crisis or in professional failure, that you can still worship God. What does David know about worship? He knows that when you worship God, you come alive. One of the names for God in the Old Testament is the living God. When you worship the living God, you come alive. And you can do this in any circumstance. And that's the temptation, isn't it? To only worship God when things are going well, when the circumstances are good. But when we do that, it means instead of worshiping God, we're really worshiping those circumstances. We become a slave to the circumstances. Good when the circumstances are good and bad when the circumstances are bad. And David teaches us a very different way that right in the middle of the worst stuff that you can imagine, there we can deliberately attend to the presence of God and cultivate a posture 
of surrender to his will above and beyond our own. And what happens when I deliberately attend to the presence of God? I come alive. And when I come alive in this way, that means that the living God is living through me. This God who provides and guides and protects, he becomes alive in me. And that means he is alive and present in this difficult circumstance. And that means that when God enters this difficult circumstance through me, that he becomes in charge of the circumstance and not me. And this is why David, in this absolute ripper of a passage, you see he has learned that when he attends to the presence of God, when he worships God, that he becomes alive and God becomes present in a new way in those circumstances. And we can have joy. Now, Dallas Willard famously defined joy, not as a passing sensation of pleasure, that's a circumstance, but as a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. It is the sensation of being cared for by this God who knows me, who loves me, and who wants something better for me than I could want for myself. When I stop thinking about and dwelling upon the circumstances and I attend to the presence of God right here in my midst, I come alive and I have joy. And here we discover something really important about what it means to be a human being. We were meant for this. We were meant to live our lives tuned into the presence of God at all times. We were meant to come alive in this way as the living God lives through us. And we were meant to do all of that with the joy of knowing that he will care for us and he will carry us. We embrace our humanness when we live in the presence of God. And this is what David is inviting us to. This is what the story here, this ripper of a passage is inviting you and me to live this life of worship in the way that we're describing. Now, it could be the case that you're thinking, That sounds awesome. That's a highlight of the Bible. That's an amazing passage, but is it really realistic in my life? And I want to offer you a a story that I've come across of a very normal person living exactly this way, deliberately attending to the presence of God and cultivating a posture of surrender to God's will above my own. It's a story from a pastor named Tom Schmidt. He wrote this. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is a large, understaffed, and overfilled place with senile and helpless and lonely people who are there just waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine, and I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go. And I always left with a sense of relief. It's just not the kind of place that you get used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I'd not visited before, And it turned out that it was Mother's Day, and I was looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower or a few words of encouragement. The hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases in the whole hospital, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs, looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was in absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. And the large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. 
One side of her face was entirely eaten by cancer, and as a consequence, she drooled constantly. I later learned that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for almost 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her, Tom wrote. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in the hallway, but I put a flower in her hand and I said, here's a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. And she held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. Much to my surprise, her, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it is lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, as you know. I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought we could find someone else to give it to. I found one and I stopped the chair and Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. It was then that it began to dawn on me that I was dealing with a special kind of life. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned a lot more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. And then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her into this convalescent hospital. And then for 25 years, she lived here as she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches and back aches and stomach aches. And then the cancer came. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. And I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible and often I would pause and she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and I would sing with her. And she would know all the words to all the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in, in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics that she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never, heard, I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress that she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It wasn't many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being there to help her to a sense of pure wonder. And then I began to go to her with a pen and just write down the things that she would say to me. During one hectic week in seminary, the final exam week, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all the things that I had to think about. And then the question occurred to me, what does Mabel think about hour after hour, day after day, not even able to know if it is night or day? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what is it that you think about as you lie here? And she said, that's easy. I think about my Jesus. I sat there for a moment and thought about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I scribbled down her answer. She said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you see. I'm one of those people who ended up mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care for much of what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, she sang. My life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No one else can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. Tom wrote, this isn't fiction. 
as incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I knew her, and I constantly asked myself, how could she do it? The seconds ticked by, and the minutes crawled, and the days barely moved past, and yet here she was, mostly satisfied in the presence of her Jesus. The answer, I think, of how she could do it is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk really to anyone, she had incredible power in the presence of God. Here was an ordinary human being, just like you and me, who received super ordinary power to do supernatural things. Her entire life consisted of following Jesus as best she could within her circumstance. Patient endurance of suffering, solitude, and prayer, and having to be my friend. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good God has been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And this is the life that you and I can live. Here's my hope for you, is that this week, you make the entire week about this kind of worship. Let's make this worship week together. Make every moment, every spare moment, your car ride or in between things with your kids or take a break at work and deliberately attend to the presence of God and cultivate a posture of surrender. Worship God this week. Let's make this week a week of worship. And I can't explain it, but the freedom and the power and the grace that I feel when I'm feeling miserable because of my circumstance, but I just say, Jesus, this is really hard for me, but I worship you. I can't explain how powerful that feels to me. And that's what I want our entire community to be doing this week. And so on our social media, we're going to share our whole song pool of all the songs that we sing at Menlo Church. And I want you to think about what are the concrete reminders that would inspire you to live this kind of worship as much as humanly possible this week. This for us is worship week because we come alive. We come alive when we worship God. We find the living God lives through us and we find joy in his presence when we attend to that presence in our everyday lives. So here I want to close this sermon and I want to begin our week of worship just the way Cheryl ended a few weeks ago by reading the 23rd Psalm. This Psalm of joy of being cared for by the God who knows us and loves us and wants what is best for us. I'm going to close with the 23rd Psalm. We're going to launch into our week of worshiping, of being deliberately attentive to God's presence. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This week, let's worship like we never have before. In every moment, let's find a way to live, to dwell in the house of the Lord. Amen.